Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 357 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT, breaking down the latest and greatest from AEW Dynamite, AEW Rampage, this week, AEW Battle of the Belts 4, I believe it was, and the latest edition of NXT as well. There is plenty to talk about on today's show, as always. So, the Silver King is not going to waste a lot of time at the top. Allow me to remind you right away, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. That's right. We are all about the five here. And what that means is we are all about those five-star ratings and reviews which you can leave for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also take a couple moments, leave a written review on Apple Podcasts as well. Let everyone know why you listen to the show. Tell them why they should subscribe. The ratings, the reviews, super important to helping this show grow. And it has, and it is constantly doing so in large part because of your ratings. So please whether you listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform that may allow you to leave a rating or a review, please go ahead and do so for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And if it is on a platform other than those two and it is a written review, please let me know. Like DM me, tweet us at Getting Overcast a copy of the review, and we will read that here on the show as we do with all of the five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Again, that Twitter account, at Getting Overcast. You can join us there for live commentary during uh, the major wrestling shows here in the United States. Also, we tweet polls, pictures, videos, GIFs, uh, news all throughout the week. Every single reason in the world to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We do have a loaded show. I say that I would say 95% of episodes that we tape. Oh, we have a loaded show. We have so much to talk about. But the truth is 2022 in the world of professional wrestling is as busy and complicated as any year in the history of this industry, I would have to say. I mean, you have to remember where this year started. All of a sudden, we get halfway through. Vince McMahon is retiring. AEW is going through chaos uh, with CM Punk being crowned world champion, only for that to be vacated due to a backstage incident. I mean, it's just absolute craziness one week after the next. And this week is no different. Not really as controversial this week as some of the other things I just mentioned, but certainly a lot to talk about. We are going to break down AEW Dynamite Rampage and Battle of the Belts. We are going to talk about NXT as it continues building on its way to Halloween Havoc, but we're actually going to start off today's episode commenting on another interviewer, another member of the media who is Ariel Hawani, who recently uh, in a show, one of his, uh, I think, MMA hour shows or whatever it's called now that he currently does, he made some comments regarding a recent interview that he did with Tony Khan, AEW's owner and president, calling it the most frustrating of his career. Now, we here at the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we really don't like to talk about other media members and their opinions, right? Certainly, there is some shade that we occasionally throw to a a certain person for a certain, let's call it perceived bias that they have regarding certain wrestlers in a certain company. But beyond that, you know, we, we really don't name drop people and and we're not here to either praise or criticize media members. However, uh, Ariel's comments kind of transcended just this is one person's opinion. And it really got into a larger conversation about uh, Tony Khan, his interviewing, and really 
what's going on recently with AEW and how it compares to WWE. So I'm going to go through a couple of the comments he made quickly, just give you my kind of perspective on them. This really isn't about Ariel. It's more about what Ariel had to say. We'll discuss those things and then we'll go ahead and move on with the rest of the show as we normally do talking AEW and NXT. So as I said, Ariel called his Tony Khan interview the most frustrating of his career. And as you all know, Ariel recently interviewed Triple H and we spent a little bit of time here on the podcast going over some notes from that interview, things that we learned that were interesting that we wanted to share with you and comment on. Well, we didn't go over the Tony Khan interview here. And there's a reason why. It's because Tony gave Ariel nothing. The entire interview was Khan basically just promoting AEW. There was no information that was gleaned from it. There was no insight that was really provided. And that is the purpose of Ariel's criticism here. It's that when you do an interview uh, with a prominent personality, whether it be a team owner, president, a coach, if you're talking about sports players, wrestlers, superstars, whatever the case might be, interviews with media are supposed to be give and take. You hear it all the time when we talk to wrestlers. We will give the person or the company promotion. We might talk about a pay-per-view or a premium live event, a charity effort, a new TV show that they're doing, a music venture, whatever the case. But in exchange for that promotion, they give us insight, a nugget of information, maybe an item that's a little bit of breaking news. You heard that in interviews we've done with Renee Paquette, uh, in interviews that we've done previously with Alistair Black. Rhea Ripley gave us some really interesting information. Santos Escobar told us about how he made his way uh, to WWE. Big E, when we talked to him, Drew McIntyre numerous times has given us some insight. Triple H and Triple H in my old podcast, I haven't yet interviewed him here for getting over, uh, but Shawn Michaels on this podcast gave us some really good insight into people that we needed to look at developing an NXT that he thought would be big stars going forward. The point is, interviews are supposed to be give and take. That's the entire point. When someone goes on you know, late night with Stephen Colbert, for example, he's promoting their book, but they're also providing entertainment for their show. They're not only talking about their book or only talking about their movie. And that's the problem with interviewing Tony Khan in many cases. I'm not saying that's always the case, but in many cases, and certainly in this case, Tony ideally wants his interviews to be one-way streets where he gets to promote his stuff and not reveal anything or provide any insight. And some places do allow him to do that, but he is currently in a situation where there's a lot of controversy surrounding AEW. And most of it, not all of it, but most of it has to do with what's been nicknamed Brawl Out, the CM Punk situation. Now, Tony said he can't comment on that. And you know what? That's completely fair because Seemingly, there's a legal issue going on. They may well be working out um, stuff with CM Punk's contract. There could potentially be a clause in there where neither party speaks on the incident as long as they break clean and, and he gets paid a certain amount. There's numerous you know, parts of that that need to be considered as to why Tony won't talk about it. But he also wouldn't talk about anything else. And he wouldn't provide any insight into anything else or even tangential items around the CM Punk situation he wouldn't address. And that is where a journalist like Ariel, and Ariel is a real journalist, has a right to be frustrated when something like that happens. When you bring someone on your show and you're ready to sit down with them for an hour and they won't answer any of your interesting questions and only are there to promote their product and not give you anything, not 
not provide any give back, just be taking the entire time. So as I said, um, I've experienced issues like this in the past. On the old show I was on, we had a certain WWE superstar who uh, was, let's say, not active with the company at the time. And he has just recently returned to WWE, this person. He was promoting a TV show. And he only wanted to talk about the TV show, not wrestling. This despite the fact that we were a combat sports podcast. Well, guess what happened? We ended the interview and we never published it because we weren't there to simply promote their show. That's the point of the entire thing. So yes, Ariel is right to be frustrated. I support him 100% on that frustration. The question is, did he need to vocalize it? Was it appropriate to go on your show and say, hey, yeah, that interview really frustrated me. Now, I don't, I wasn't able to glean the full context of how that came up. If it was a mailbag question or someone said your interview with Tony Khan sucked or something like that. Certainly if I was approached in a similar situation and said, hey, that interview you did really not good. I'm like, yeah, it was the most frustrating interview of my career. The guy didn't say anything. I would feel the same way. What was a bigger issue, in my opinion, in comments that Ariel recently made on his show was his take about WWE clearly being better than AEW as of late. And he claimed that anyone who said otherwise was a liar. Now, I agree with the opinion, just not really the way it was stated. WWE has been eons better than AEW over the last couple of months. There's, I don't see any question in that. To me, it's an inarguable observation given my expertise and my objective knowledge of the sport and both companies. However, that's my opinion. And everyone has their own opinions and they have their own perspectives and there are things that entertain them and things they enjoy. I hate horror movies. I'm not gonna say that all horror movies are terrible and if you think otherwise, you're a liar because there's a ton of people who love horror movies and they probably hate action movies or romantic comedies or buddy comedies or whatever the case might be. It's my opinion that horror movies suck and I have no interest in watching them. That doesn't mean you need to share it. So I would never call someone a liar or suggest they're biased if they have liked AEW better than WWE recently. But what I would do is ask them to make their case because it's not something I personally believe. And I would want to know how could you come to that opinion when, in my opinion, the evidence that's presented in front of me is a better product that has been more entertaining and more exciting over the last couple of months. Now, if Ariel had focused his comments more on popularity, such as brand growth, ratings, ticket sales, then yes, someone would be a liar if they claimed AEW was growing more recently or doing better business recently than WWE, because that is proven or can be proven via data and analysis to not be the case. WWE, if you're looking at which brand is hotter right now, WWE is the hotter brand than AEW. There's no questioning that. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It's better to me right now. It's better to him right now. But it doesn't mean it's better to you, whoever you are listening to this podcast right now. It doesn't mean it's better to Chris or anyone else that I might know who is a wrestling fan. Everyone has different tastes and different opinions of what is good or quality entertaining, exciting, whatever the case might be. As I said at the start here, I'm really not a fan of commenting on other media members, especially when it comes to wrestling. But this did make enough news across the industry where I felt we needed to address it here. So let me just wrap it all up. 
On the frustration talk, Ariel was 100% justified in feeling that way. On the talk about which product is actively better, again, I share the same opinion, but I wholeheartedly disagree with the idea that others are liars if they legitimately enjoy something more than I do. Coca-Cola, I believe, is by far the best mainstream cola product, soda product. If you like Pepsi, I'm going to think you're weird, but I'm not going to call you a liar over it. I would also suggest, hey, maybe try RC Cola, which is massively underrated and sneakily perhaps even better than Coke, but that's probably another conversation for another day. The point is, um, was he right about Tony, you know, being frustrated over the Tony Khan interview? Yes, candidly, as a listener, someone who was hoping to glean information from it and be able to provide content for the show. These are all the things that Tony Khan revealed. I was frustrated listening to it. It was not a good interview and it was Tony's fault, not Ariel's fault. But in terms of the other part of the thing, calling you, calling fans liars if they happen to like AEW more than WWE right now, that's just, it's not accurate. Yes, WWE is the hotter product. There's no question about it, but AEW is still doing really well. And they've, over the last couple of weeks in particular, they put on some pretty good shows. That wasn't the case a couple of months ago where I said on this podcast and every episode that we had, whether it was the WWE show or the AEW show, I was very clear saying AEW is, is going downhill right now. Like these shows are not entertaining. They are not as enjoyable as they used to be. The wrestling isn't as good. The storytelling isn't as good. All that was true. I got to tell you, the last couple of weeks, they're taking some marginal steps in the right direction. And then this week, with AEW Dynamite in Toronto, it was one of their best shows in months. In fact, I'm going to correct myself immediately. It was their best show in months and possibly one of their best television programs of the entire year. So probably wrong timing for him to say that, you know, just before AEW goes out and puts on a really good television show as well. So I don't want to harp on this anymore. I don't want to kind of keep repeating myself. I feel like I've said the same thing two or three times already, but I did want to make sure uh, my point was clear, which is that, yes, as a journalist, there have been numerous times that I have been involved in interviews with subjects and I've come out of it. And I said, well, that was a waste of time. And sometimes you publish it anyway, because they're a really popular person and um, you know that fans are going to want to listen to it. So you're going to get your views and you're going to get all your stuff. But many other times you do it and you finish it and you just kind of sit there and you're like, yeah, that was a total waste of time for me, for them. And I can't even use the content that makes it even worse. And this was a case where it was the former example, where Tony Khan is such a big name and people want to hear what he has to say. They want insight from him. They want analysis of his brand and uh, insight into what's going on behind the scenes that when you do an interview with him, especially an hour long or however long that was, you can't really not publish it. So Ariel was right again to feel that way. Um, I do support him in that. I've experienced the exact same thing. But in terms of telling people what they should like, I will never support that, even though I tell you on this podcast what I like every single week. I just hope you agree, or at least if you don't agree, I hope you find my opinions interesting enough to continue following along and perhaps even argue with me, whether via DM or tweet or just being open to hearing someone whose opinions are not the same as yours. Hopefully, perhaps you learn or you have some insight into how someone who doesn't necessarily agree with everything that you think about wrestling, how they feel and how they think and how they watch and absorb and digest the product that they get to see. So with all of that said, let's go ahead and move on. We're going to talk AEW and NXT. This week, there was an absolute 
ton of stuff from AEW, obviously three shows, four total hours of television. So we are going to go ahead and start with AEW. As always, we do have timestamps in our episode description. So if you're not an AEW watcher, you just want to skip to the NXT portion of the show, you have the ability to do that by checking the description, finding the timestamp. As always, I hope you all listen to every single part of these shows. As I said, with AEW Dynamite, I thought it was top to bottom, the best TV show that they've put on in months and one of their best of the entire year. Rampage and Battle of the Belts on Friday. Let me say that they were better than usual, but being better doesn't make them good. They were both pretty rough watches and overall relatively terrible shows, I need to say. like it, I felt like two hours of my life was wasted watching Rampage and Battle of the Belts, whereas on Dynamite, like sometimes I start making dinner a little bit later and I wait until like the first match is on for Dynamite because I know it goes long and I have time to like do two things at once. I couldn't even like take myself away from the television in, in many times to make dinner because so many interesting things were happening that I wanted to talk about and I needed to make notes on. So let's go ahead. Let's break down everything from Dynamite, Rampage, Battle of the Belts. I'm going to do it by topic and storyline rather than by show. So we're going to kick things off on Rampage. We had Blackpool Combat Club against Roosh and Private Party. The firm was in the crowd with Stokely Hathaway eating cake. There was a dumb spot with Claudio Castagnoli doing the swing on Isaiah Cassidy with Mark Quinn on his shoulders, really for no reason whatsoever. John Moxley took Roosh out with a tope suicida. Wheeler Yuta eventually won with a bicep slice. There were some nice spots here. It was totally random booking without reason and really nothing notable happened. Plus, I really thought it was strange to do a trios match when there was already a trios title match booked on the same night. That just didn't really make sense. So moving over to Battle of the Belts, Matt Hardy asked Stoke and Ethan Page why they keep sticking their noses in his business. Stoke showed him a video of Matt talking to Private Party. Matt said it's not contract tampering because he was just talking to his friends. Page got in his face, presumably setting up a match for the future. I thought it was a decently funny segment, actually, if I'm being candid. So then over on Dynamite, Stoke told Hardy that he purchased Private Party's contracts. Page laughed. Hardy challenged him to a match. Instead, Ethan Page challenged Cassidy, that being Isaiah Cassidy, for Rampage with the stipulation that they would be set free should Cassidy win. But if he lost, Hardy would then be under contract with the firm. This was all a roundabout way of doing an angle that I'm sure was previously scheduled for Andrade El Idolo's group. And that's fine. Like, it's a good adjustment. Does it make any sense that Jose is working with the firm? No. But again, it's an unplanned adjustment. They're making the best of a bad situation. I thought it was a good way to add an important stipulation to an otherwise worthless match. On Dynamite, Butcher and the Blade were angry. Claudio made Roosh look bad and dared him to fight them. Yet the match was already booked with Mox as Claudio's partner. It seems like Tony Khan is making an effort to put bigger names on Rampage. And that's a good thing. The problem is the storylines are completely half-assed. It's not that I need or that I think fans need Mox and Claudio necessarily on Rampage. They need people who would otherwise be on Dynamite, but are not to have storylines that are important and interesting on Rampage. For example, where the hell is Miro, right? If you're not doing anything with Miro because you don't have storyline time for him on Dynamite, then why don't you have him on Rampage, give him one or two squash matches, then start a storyline with a mid-carder, have that go two weeks, and now all of a sudden, Miro's on TV and he's doing stuff. That's just a a small example of what I'm talking about. Or Roosh, as opposed to being involved in a storyline with six other people, maybe he has a side feud with someone and we have a really exciting 
Roosh one-on-one match with another really talented wrestler. That happens on Rampage on a week where Roosh is not appearing or not fighting on Dynamite. Whereas we have instead John Moxley on two shows, cutting a promo on one and wrestling in a completely unimportant match that doesn't matter whatsoever against Butcher and the Blade on Friday night. That's how you do it. You don't necessarily just need to put your stars on the show. You need to put mid-level, perhaps upper mid-card names and give them their own features and storylines. That's going to get people to watch Rampage because it feels like a continuation of Dynamite as opposed to just a throwaway show that either isn't important or has names on there in unimportant matches. So let's move on. On Dynamite, MJF was asked about his near handshake with Yuta and his confrontation with William Regal last week. Stoke interrupted before he could answer, but MJF told him he wouldn't stand for that trope of someone in AEW being interrupted at the start of their interview. He said that was strike two, and Stoke was one strike away from being fired. Then he forced him to go away. MJF said he wouldn't be shy talking about Regal's past if it came to it, and he doesn't know whether he was going to shake Yuta's hand, but he learned that nice guys historically finish last. MJF said no one has an idea what it takes to be him, and he wakes up every morning forcing himself to be the bad guy, even though he doesn't like who that makes him, all because bad guys come out on top and he wants to be the best. This was an exceptional promo. It's clear that there's an effort to make MJF more of a tweener than a full heel. You don't have a legitimate bad guy talking about not wanting to be a bad guy while turning away a heel who helped him last week if that's not your plan. So I presume the idea is to use this distinction to either explain why he will get cheered when he eventually wins the AEW title, or it could even be part of a slow burn face turn. But we've seen numerous occasions in AEW recently where there's a slow burn turn and then you get to the end of it and the person never turns. So I don't exactly know what the plan is. Either of those options though would be smart character work and storytelling. And all of this is kind of coming from a relatively short backstage segment. My only problem with this entire storyline remains the cash and ripoff. Like the chip is now basically the money in the bank briefcase. Other than that, the MJF side of this entire thing has been pretty awesome. So staying with Dynamite, Mox cut an in-ring promo saying that being world champion isn't easy and a lot of guys who reach the mountaintop crumble from the pressure, some faster than others. That seemed like a dig at CM Punk, but it could have also been Hangman, I guess. Hangman Page then entered at the mention of his name, saying he appreciated Mox's respect last week and reciprocated it. MJF was watching from a suite. Hangman said he was offended Mox called him a kid the last time they spoke. And Mox affirmed his stance, saying he didn't think Hangman had the guts to pull the trigger and take him out. Hangman talked about his old friends disappearing, referring to the elite, explaining that he's angry and frustrated at his lot in life. Page then punched himself in the head a few times and did it so hard that he literally bruised his forehead. Like, live. It wasn't a delayed bruise. As soon as he finished, there was a huge welt red spot right on his forehead. He said he's a man who will beat Mox within an inch of his life in front of his family. Hangman gave his word that he would be the next champion, saying it to Mox man to man before bumping him in the shoulder as he walked out of the ring. This was a really good segment overall. Personally, again, this is a personal opinion. This is what we talked about earlier. I just don't buy what Hangman Page says on the mic when he talks like this. He is not a believable talker to me. I saw people saying this was his best promo ever. Maybe. I didn't think so. But again, I'm just uh, one person who, when I listen to him talk, I don't really buy what he has to say. And that's not going to be the same for everyone, but it is for me personally. That said, the content of his promo was perfect with Hangman trying to prove himself to the top guy in the company 
who has been disrespecting him. I presume the booking will be Mox winning, but like shaking Paige's hand or even hugging him or something like that after the belt so he earns his respect. And if that's the execution, it's going to be great because we already know the in-ring part of this, the match itself, is going to bang. Before we move on, though, I do want to say, Hangman punching himself in the head was such an unforced error. Not only was it ridiculous, but he may have legitimately like created a huge bruise over his right eye. It hurt him so much in the moment. He spent the latter half of his promo literally rubbing his face like because he felt, oh my God, what the hell did I just do to myself? Really silly stuff. It was distracting. And also I should mention, the camera cuts to MJF every five seconds when he's sitting in a suite with his chip. They are exhausting to this point. We get it. He's there watching. Cut to him every 30 or 45 seconds, not every five or 10 seconds. You would think they learned the lesson from the main event of, um, I forgot what it was now. Was it Grand Slam? I think, yeah. Like when they kept cutting to him in the suite, you would think that after all of the criticism of that, they would have learned their lesson. And yet here we go again. And they did it, you know, not necessarily more, but just as frequently given the uh, short period of time of this segment. Uh, On Dynamite, the Ring of Honor Championship was on the line. Chris Jericho defending against Brian Danielson during Battle of the Belts. Jericho, Matt Menard, and Angelo Parker told Daniel Garcia through the camera they were not angry but disappointed, and it's time for him to come home after he got a chance to do his own thing. Then Jericho said he would return to being Lionheart for his third match with Danielson. Talk about repetitive. Like, not just the fact that we're getting Jericho Danielson for a third time in a very short window, but that like he's going back to the Lionheart character for the third time in a very short window. Just be Chris Jericho at this point. Like, I don't think anyone is differentiating between Lionheart and the Ocho and the Wizard and all these different uh, Le Champion and whatever. Like, I know they're technically different characters in theory, and I get that you're back in Canada, so maybe you want to be Lionheart, which is how you started, but just come out to the theme. Like, you don't need to make it a big deal every single time. Then there was Claudio who cut a taped promo saying he wanted to challenge the winner no matter who took the title. We just saw Claudio and Jericho, so I guess we're going to get that again. Menard, Parker, and Jericho then basically cut the exact same promo at Garcia on Dynamite, with Jericho adding that Garcia hadn't recently returned their calls. Jericho promised to out-wrestle and out-fight Danielson. So getting to the match, Jericho hit a hurricanrana off the ropes and his springboard dropkick. Danielson came back with a little bell lock, but Jericho escaped into walls of Jericho. Danielson reversed that. The crowd was behind the Canadian rather than the babyface. Brian did the hammer elbows. Jericho cut his arm and hit an attitude adjustment. Jericho caught Brian flying with a codebreaker for a near fall. Danielson dodged a Judas effect attempt. Jericho pushed him into the referee. That led Menard and Parker down. Menard threw the title in the ring. Jericho was prepared to use it when Garcia ran down and stole it away from him, jawing in his face. They pushed each other. Brian then hit Jericho with the psycho knee. Then Garcia nailed Danielson with the title. Danielson was out cold. Jericho kicked the title off the apron and then covered Danielson for the one, two, three to retain the strap. Jericho and Garcia hugged after the bell. The rest of BCC sans mocks uh, charged down to kind of end the entire thing. Strong match. Four stars, A minus, really good. Uh, It was running hot and it would have been higher, obviously, with a different finish. It was frustrating, yes, to see Brian lose again, but I really had no expectations that he was actually going to win the title, and he got an out, so that's okay. He's going to win the world title eventually, but it does seem as if they could be booking him far better overall, because every time he's on television, he's losing, and it just doesn't make any sense that a wrestler of his caliber would lose almost every single time. I'm fine with Brian putting people over, but Jericho isn't one of those guys to get put over, you know what I mean? Now, 
teasing the turn with Garcia and not executing it in a vacuum. It was a smart way to book this match, but it also made the last few months of television storytelling completely irrelevant, twisting and twisting and twisting only to wind up right where you started with really no character progression at the end of the day. It's exactly what they just did with Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker. Not only that, it keeps us stuck in this never-ending JASBCC feud. We've already seen Brian Garcia twice. We've seen Brian Jericho three times. We've seen Mox involved. We've seen Yuta in matches. We've seen Claudio and stuff. Like, we've seen it all. And we even saw the factions fight at Blood and Guts. So there's not, they're not even leading up to the faction warfare because we've already seen it. I guess if they want to extend this to full gear, fine, but it needs to be over after that. And Brian needs to be out of this feud doing something else immediately, even if they just give him time off. Get him away from this feud. It's I, I don't see what other use he could be, and I'm starting to get tired. Not starting to. I'm getting even more tired of this than I already was. Now, Dynamite opened on Wednesday with new AEW signee Renee Paquette. She walked on stage in her hometown. Christian Cage was her guest. He got a big pop and guaranteed a win, unlike the Toronto Maple Leafs, who are guaranteed losers. This was effective given Christian is actually like an from an hour outside Toronto. So that is his team. We'll get to the match in a minute that he talked about. Uh, with Renee, this was a long time coming. It was obvious that once she was ready to return to work full-time after having her baby, it would be in AEW. So it's a great pickup. I thought it might result in Tony Schiavone staying more on commentary, but Tony did just as many segments as her. Alex Marvez was still being used backstage. Renee is 25 times better than Marvez. And Shivani already has a job on commentary. I'm not saying Renee should do every single backstage interview or every single interview in front of the crowd, but she should be doing the vast majority of them. They need if, if she's on the team, if she's on the roster, she needs to get featured. She's RB1. You know, she's not the backup. She should be the one front and center. It's great that Shivani has his thing. If you want him to do stuff with Britt Baker cool. You wanted him to do stuff with Mox. That way it's not Renee and Mox in the ring. Cool. Let Renee do almost everything else. And speaking of Tony's, uh, Khan announced her signing before Dynamite as a way to try and pop the rating as opposed to just letting her show up on TV. I thought that was kind of annoying, but that's very typical. One other funny side note here. AEW has now hired nearly the entire WWE backstage crew. Like you remember that show on FS1? Renee, Paige, Christian, Mark Henry, Ember Moon, and CM Punk. Really the only person who is like a full-time or regular host who they did not get is Booker T. It's just wild that they basically hired that entire show. Renee also recently got a job uh, doing some work for the Cincinnati Bengals, which is obviously John Moxley's favorite team. And she still has her podcast, The Sessions, which I assume is not gonna have WWE guests anymore. I guess we will find out. That's unfortunate. I think her radio show with Misha Tate is over. I could be wrong. The point is, I'm sure Renee is quite happy to be back in front of a crowd, and it's going to be great to see her weekly. She's just exceptionally talented, super entertaining. I'll definitely reach out to her again. You know, she was basically uh, a huge interview that we did on this podcast when we first launched. I'll see if we can get her back on the show, but I'm very happy for her. Uh, congratulations to Renee Paquette on her new role with AEW. So getting to the match that Christian talked about, it was Jungle Boy against Luchasaurus. This was obviously... Uh, continuing their feud. Christian is still injured, so he's not really able to wrestle yet. A table was set up at ringside. Luchasaurus caught Jungle Boy flying outside, but he countered into a hurricanrana into the post. The payoff was a sunset flip powerbomb with Jungle Boy taking Luchasaurus 
off the apron into the table. Christian distracted by walking down to the ring. There were some good counters back inside with a high effort and kind of dangerous Poison Rana that was hit on Luchasaurus. Jungle Boy added Kill Switch. That was a false finish. Luchasaurus reached the ropes on the snare trap. Christian then held his hand on the rope as a distraction and also to ensure that Jungle Boy couldn't pull him back into the ring. Luchasaurus caught Jungle Boy with a choke slam flip style from the top rope. Then he added an inverted attitude adjustment for the win. This was quite well done. Uh, appropriate winner given the storyline. Good action that got plenty of time. It really showed what Luchasaurus can do as like an athletic big man. I wouldn't hate to see this again before we get to the inevitable match against Christian. So if they want to do Jungle Boy Luchasaurus with some type of stipulation at full gear, I'm definitely down for it. Entertaining opener. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. Some of you are going to say, what the hell are you talking about? It was way better than that. It was very spotty. The storyline is about Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus and their history. And that none of that really came into it. Like it was just big man, small man. So I, I didn't think the story was there. And then of course we had the finish. So I had it in at a four. And then I always downgrade when there's a distraction or interference or whatever. So very good match. One of three top tier matches on Dynamite, which is one of the reasons why this was such an entertaining episode. So I would definitely watch this. I would definitely watch the Chris Jericho versus Brian Danielson match. And we'll get to the other one that I would definitely watch as we keep going. On Rampage, the Varsity Blondes fought uh, Tony Nese and Josh Woods. This was a two-minute match with the heels hitting an Olympic slam neckbreaker for the win. I like the finisher. Arn Anderson was watching backstage for some reason. Maybe some of you understand why, or but I, I, I had no idea. Uh, Mark Sterling announced after the bell that he trademarked the term varsity in professional wrestling and that his team was now named the Varsity Athletes. He also said he would sue the Blondes if they ever use the name again. The acclaim interrupted with commentary reminding us that they're popular. I always find it super annoying the way AEW like talks about its talent or talks about what's happening live on TV. Oh my God, these guys are so popular. Wow, this match is so good. Uh, Wow, our fans are the best. Like it's just... Let people watch the damn product and like know those things for themselves. If they're entertained by the match or they see someone getting cheered, guess what? They know they're popular. They know the match is good. You don't need to like tell us. You want to talk about WWE force feeding us shit back in the day, you know, pre-Triple H. We'll have to think of what we call that era. Um, This is AEW force feeding on commentary. It's really, really annoying. Anyway, uh, Max Caster gave his best rap in weeks by like a really good margin. There was a great line about Draymond Green. They scissored and that was it. There was no promo, no match with the acclaimed, nothing. Uh, the trademark gimmick was Sterling. I actually think it's kind of cool. This was literally an entire segment though, built around getting an entrance for the acclaimed, which I thought was pretty annoying. So we'll move over to Dynamite. Swerve Strickland fought Billy Gunn on Rampage. Swerve told Billy he wasn't looking to put on a banger when they fight. He just wanted to destroy him. Good short promo from Swerve. Caster's entrance rap was strong again. So back to back, there was a great line about Justin Trudeau wearing blackface. Uh, I have a feeling that one's going to get cut from their YouTube, but nevertheless, it was a good line. Uh, Swerve attacked the leg. Gun missed the Famouser. Swerve came back with a rolling flatliner in the Swerve Stomp for a false finish. Gun kicked out of it. Blame was put on a slow cover. It really wasn't that slow. Swerve then countered Gun and hooked his arm, his own arm, on the bottom rope for the win. So it was a good enough match. I don't really understand why Swerve could not have beaten 58-year-old Billy Gun clean. Yes, 58-year-old Billy Gun. He doesn't look it, but he is. I get that Swerve was technically giving the acclaimed and Billy a taste of their own medicine with cheating, but that usually happens when a face does that to a heel who cheated, not a heel doing it to a baby face. To me, it came off as them protecting Billy Gunn. I don't know why. He's ancient. 
And Swerve is the future. A clean win does so much more for Swerve than the tongue-in-cheek cheating by using the ropes. After the bell, a claim came down to Scissor. Sterling interrupted, saying he owned the trademark to Scissor Me in pro wrestling. He promised to sue if they did anything with it. And then he scissored uh, Tony Nese. Clearly, the move here is they're going to use the Scissor Me trademark to force the acclaimed into a title match. And you know what? That's way better than giving Tony Nese and Josh Woods or whatever his name is a match for no reason whatsoever based on dark wins. So I actually really liked the idea, the concept of the entire thing. And I also think it's funny given how like trademarks are such a news item in professional wrestling, not just in AEW, but in WWE, everyone wants to know what's the latest thing they've trademarked and who has what trademark. So I actually do think it's kind of funny that they've made it into like an on-screen part of Sterling's character. I enjoyed that. On Rampage, there was the trio's title match, Death Triangle against Dark Order. Lucha Bros hit the assisted taint stomp on Alex Reynolds. Ten hit some spine busters. There was no tagging at all. John Silver hit a deadlift brain buster. Fans chanted Brody, which was pretty cool. They hit the pendulum bomb on Ray Phoenix for a near fall, then a series of moves plus the discus lariat on Pentagon for a broken fall. Jose and Roosh came out late. Pac took the hammer from the bell, took it from Roosh. He punched Reynolds in the face. Phoenix did a tightrope splash on 10 and fought with Silver on the ramp. Then Pac won with a brutalizer on Reynolds, who was knocked out cold already, so he could have just been pinned. I don't know why he put him in the brutalizer. And the referee didn't think twice that this guy laying on the canvas was knocked out, despite not seeing how that happened. So we get a pretty damn entertaining match, despite a lack of tags, only for it to end with tweeners purposely cheating with the help of pure heels to beat a team that was honoring Brody Lee. Like, why not just let them honor him by fighting their hearts out and losing clean to a superior team? Why are you protecting them? What's the harm in these guys, Dark Order, who have never accomplished anything taking an L? It was a sudden disappointing finish, and it was unfortunate to end a really solid match in that way. On Battle of the Belts, the All-Atlantic title was on the line, Pac defending against Trent Beretta. Pac had an insanely great sell on a Tornado DDT. He also ate a pile driver for a false finish. Pac came back with a suplex off the stage through a table, but he did it into like one of the sides of the table instead of the middle. And Trent took a really bad bump. Luckily, he was okay. Trent tried to get knees up on the Black Arrow. Instead, Pac just completely missed it. Pac then grabbed the hammer again. Trent grabbed him over the ropes for a move but Pac punched him in the face with it and then fell on top of him for the cover. Again, the referee didn't question how a punch to the face ended the match, despite the hammer laying in the middle of the canvas. Orange Cassidy ran out angry after the bell and Pac slinked away. Didn't something just happen in AEW where a referee noticed something and then straight up reversed the decision? How could he not have done that in this case when the hammer sitting in the middle of the ring? I thought that was a major continuity error. So then we move over to Dynamite, the main event, Pac against Orange. Pac, this was also for the All-Atlantic Championship, if I didn't mention. Uh, Pac teased doing Orange's like gimmick kicks, but he popped up with a surprise dropkick. Pac then caught an attempted Tope Suicida into a Falcon Arrow-style brainbuster at ringside. Orange ate a tombstone on the ramp and then rolled himself down the ramp to beat the slowest 10 count, maybe the second slowest 10 count in professional wrestling history. Once back inside, Pac immediately put on the Brutalizer, but Orange got the ropes. The referee stopped Pac from getting the hammer this time outside. Orange caught Pac with the Tope Suicida and Tornado DDTs, both outside and inside, with two more incredible cells. Uh, Orange punch was a false finish. Beach break on the apron didn't lead to a fall. Pac caught Orange with an inventive suplex and put him back in the Brutalizer, but he got the ropes again. Pac's ear was busted open hard way too. Uh, Pac went to grab the hammer when Danhausen stopped him and cursed him. Pac punched him and then shot 
snot on him. The referee then caught Pack with the hammer, which Pack gave to the referee before grabbing a second one from under the ring. Orange countered an attempted hammer shot with the orange punch. The referee saw the hammer on the ground and he shouldn't have known who used it. So he could have thought in that moment that Orange Cassidy used it, but he didn't think twice about it. Orange grabbed it and he was gonna use it. The referee yelled at him to think, so he handed it to the referee. Pack rolled him up for a near fall. Cassidy came back with two orange punches and he won the All-Atlantic Championship. Orange confetti exploded. And the best part, he actually got some time to celebrate. No run-ins, no bullshit at the end. He got like a good minute to celebrate before Dynamite went off the air. This was an outstanding match. I went 4.25 stars and an A, only downgraded a little bit because of the starts and stops and the finish. It was at 4.5. Like it was right there. Um, but very, very good match. It was obvious Orange was going to go over based on the Friday booking, but giving Toronto a title change for AW's first ever international show, definitely the right move. Plus, Orange finally has a title and Pac didn't need two given he's already a trios champion. Speaking of Pac, he is at the point now where he might be a top five seller in all of pro wrestling and saying top five may actually be an insult. He might be one, two, or three at this point. He is just incredible. Every single Pac match, I marvel at the way he puts over other people's moves, especially DDTs. Anything he can do where he can like arc his body back or stand on his head, he sells it like absolute death. Now, I want to add my opinion of this match that I just gave. It didn't change my opinion on the prior matches that we just discussed in terms of like the use of the hammer, the referee being blind and dumb to it all those times, unwilling to reverse a decision when that's now been established as a kayfabe reality. This didn't change that. But in the moment, again, in a vacuum, I did very much enjoy this match. On Rampage, Eddie Kingston backstage sarcastically apologized for losing control while submitting Sammy Guevara. He also made a sarcastic comment about only getting 30 seconds to speak while MJF gets 15 minutes. This was seriously the best part of Rampage. I was howling at this like very short backstage promo from Kingston. The guy got no time to do one of those stupid taped promos, and yet it was exceedingly entertaining and he made the absolute most of it. On Battle of the Belts, the ROH tag team titles were on the line. FTR against the Gates of Agony. You want to know what Agony was? It was watching this match. FTR hit Big Rig on one guy. The Bishop guy distracted. Then Dax Harwood won with a backslide. Zero reaction from the crowd. The Gates and Brian Cage attacked after the bell. No reaction from the attack. Wardlow eventually made the save wearing a tucked in purple polo shirt. That was a fashion decision. Samoa Joe then had to come out to save all of them. And I just want to know who's asking for this. Like, who wanted a six-man or eight-man tag with these guys? I'll tell you, nobody. It was a shit match, which is really shocking given it was FTR wrestling. And yes, they are legitimately one of the best tag teams in the world right now. That is one big pile of shit. So then on Dynamite, War Joe fought the factory. Wardlow hit a senton bomb with Joe submitting Nick Camarado with the coquina clutch. After the bell, Wardlow powerbombed QT Marshall. He was ready to do another one when the embassy interrupted with cage cutting a absolutely awful promo. FTR came out to a huge champ to make a six-man challenge. They said, hey, Wardlow and Joe, they're probably busy, so here's our third man on our team. And they brought out Sean Spears, who returned to AEW as perfection with the INO a 10. So like his fourth gimmick in the company. Again, let's talk about the vacuum. In the vacuum, there was nothing wrong with Warjo versus the factory itself. It's cool to pop a first-time crowd with like, Two popular stars beating the shit out of low-card heels. That makes sense. The problems, though, are twofold here. One, 
Why the fuck are two singles champions that are dominant, like Wardlow and Joe, being used as a tag team? To what end? Both sets of tag team titles right now are held by faces. The tag team division doesn't need more teams, and neither of them are involved in singles feuds, despite them having singles titles. It's a good thing they're not involved in this match, but we're going to have to see how they're booked next. And then regarding Spears, look, having him return in Canada, that's nice. You have to admit, though, him going back to his WWE gimmick, it's pretty funny, especially after everything else he tried in AEW failed. Plus, the theme, I don't know if you guys got to hear it, the theme was a total ripoff of the Ty Dillinger theme from WWE. It makes sense for them to do this since he's going babyface, but they already have a guy in 10 from Dark Order who does the 10 chants that Ty Dillinger used to do as the perfect 10 in WWE. Now you have Sean Spears back as perfection, seemingly going to do the 10 chants again. It's just an absolute mess. Uh, on Dynamite, Tony Storm and Hikaru Shida fought Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter. There was a promo for this match on Rampage, but it didn't explain why Shida was like back involved here. Shida hit a springing Meteora. Hayter hit her with a Uranagi backbreaker. Baker took Storm out with a swinging neckbreaker. The heels doubled Shida with Baker hitting a stomp for a broken fall. Storm hit her Tornado DDT and Storm Zero despite being the illegal woman the entire time. The referee actively delayed her count so the fall could be broken. There was zero tagging in this match. Storm hit a Tornado DDT outside on Hater. Baker put the lockjaw on Sheeta, but she shifted into a pin attempt. Sheeta then hit a big move, but they countered multiple pinning attempts with Sheeta getting the win over Baker with a kind of uh, trap pinfall combination in eight minutes. So strong wrestling here from like a move and an entertainment standpoint. No doubt about that. But there were numerous problems, starting with it basically being a tornado match the entire time. Beyond that, why is Sheeta beating Baker? When Baker is in the middle of, or I should say starting, a feud with Soraya. Sheeta is one of my favorites in AEW. She might be my favorite women's wrestler in AEW. But do the active storylines benefit from her beating Baker when Baker should be reestablishing herself before going up against the huge signing, presumably at full gear? And again, why is Storm playing second fiddle to another woman? She's the interim champion. Storm's promo on Rampage was about Sheeta, not herself, not her title. She didn't talk on Dynamite, and Sheeta was the one featured in the match. She's basically the supporting actress with the title instead of the lead actress. Also, the women, let's not forget, were back in the same spot on the show with an eight-minute match, double commercial break, so please spare me the revolution shit until they actually do something with it. On Battle of the Belts, the TBS title was on the line, Jade Cargill against Willow Nightingale. Willow had a kind of cool like Lariat Tope Suicida, but Jade put her into the steel steps with the Casadora. Willow came back with a cannonball and a missile dropkick. Jade no-sold completely with a kick out at one. Jade lost Willow in her arms trying a move, so she just slammed her, and then she followed with Jade for the win in seven minutes and 30 seconds. Immediately after the bell, Vicky Guerrero screamed on the mic, and Nyla Rose stole the TBS championship. This was actually one of Jade's better matches, which isn't really saying much if you watched this match. Willow carried her for the most part, I wasn't put off by it like I usually am though. The post-match was whatever. Stealing the title is so 1980s. I hate when anyone does it on any brand. It's just super trite at this point. Over on Rampage, Tay J.A.S. fought Madison Rain in Sky Blue. Tay hit a package pile driver. Rain came back with a crucifix bomb. There was a big botch with a Casadora before the heels won with Queen Slayer in over seven minutes. This got good time, but as with my criticism from Raw, WWE Raw this week, Half of this was during commercial 
And the wrestling was really poor overall in this match. I guess the right team won. Didn't really matter. Backstage at Dynamite, Nyla said possession is nine-tenths of the law. Anna Jay wanted to fight her for the title, which isn't even hers. And Nyla agreed. What worked for me here is like Nyla showed a lot of her real-life personality that hasn't actually been used on screen in AEW. But the storyline is absurd, and I still don't know why Marina Shafir is with them. I assume Jade and the baddies are going to steal the title back on Friday, and ultimately we'll get Jade against Nyla Rose. And you know what? If Nyla's the one to beat Jade for the title, that would be fantastic. I just don't think they're ever going to do it at this point, and I don't think they're going to put it on Nyla Rose if they do. So all a disappointment there. And lastly, on Battle of the Belts, Hook was asked about the envelope from last week. So he held it up. It was unopened. He ripped it in half, and he dropped it on the floor. So... He kept this letter for a full week without opening it only so he could be in a promo where he ripped it in half. And the journalist who was interviewing him, rather than picking up the two pieces of the ripped envelope and just matching them right together, he only tore it one way. He didn't rip it to shreds. She just didn't do anything and the segment ended. Like, I'm not saying this is the worst thing ever in wrestling, but can we just use a little bit of common sense when we do shit? It was a zero. It was terrible. So that's AEW for the week. As I said, Dynamite, pretty great. Really good show. Still issues, obviously. Rampage and Battle of the Belts, once again, major problems across both. Let's move over to NXT. Now, before we get into breaking down the show, first some thoughts on Booker T, uh, who stepped in the color commentary role, uh, replacing Wade Barrett, who has shifted over to SmackDown. We discussed all of that on Tuesday's WWE show. So Go feel free to listen to that. Uh, We had a whole conversation about the commentary and broadcast changes in WWE, along, of course, with our normal WWE talk, Raw, SmackDown, Extreme Rules Fallout, Brock Lesnar, Gallows and Anderson, um, Legado del Fantasma. We talked a ton of stuff on our Tuesday show. Make sure you listen to that. So I enjoy Booker T on commentary. I know some don't. I do. But I will say on NXT, he was a clear downgrade from Wade. He's also a strange fit for NXT. That's not to say that he was bad or that he hurt the show. But Barrett is far more knowledgeable about the young talent, and he actively puts them over, whereas Booker, he kind of speaks more generally as if he's doing commentary on the main roster. So it was a bit disappointing, even though he's definitely entertaining to listen to. And one more thing about um, match time. Let me talk about this before we get going here. So there were three matches around 10 minutes on the show, and that's, that's fine. But there were also five that were under four minutes each. And I know NXT is developmental. A couple short matches per episode, totally fine. But they should be in the minority, not the majority. If you want to have some type of, you know, hierarchy where certain people get anywhere from 18 to 12 minutes, and then the next group gets anywhere from 10 to 7, and then the next group gets anywhere from, you know, 4 to 2, because they're fully developing, that's totally fine. But there should be almost an equal number of both, or at least a majority of the first two categories and a minority of the third category. You have enough talent where you don't need to be putting people who are so green they cannot wrestle more than two or three minutes on television. I'm not saying that you can't do it at all, but you don't need to put that many of them on per episode. So that was a frustration with me overall from NXT. I didn't dislike the episode by any means, but it is kind of a thing that's developed. Again, it's a huge difference, of course, from black and gold NXT where you'd get sometimes multiple 20-minute matches on the same show. I'm not saying I need that. I need one match that is 15 to 20 minutes would be nice, ideally. A couple matches that are, you know, a couple minutes shorter than that. A couple minutes shorter than that for a few more. 
And then if you want to give a couple squashes after that, that's totally fine. But it just cannot be where the majority of the matches are less than four minutes. It's not entertaining to watch wrestling that short because you don't get to invest or get involved in any of them, nor do you really get to see what they can do. If you're NXT like talent evaluators trying to figure out, are these people going to work for us long-term? Seeing someone in the ring for three minutes doesn't really do anything. So let's get into the show. Braun Breaker fought Javier Bernal in a non-title match. J.D. McDonough walked out after Bernal did to sit on commentary. Breaker won with his press power slam while staring at J.D., getting the pinfall in three minutes and 15 seconds. This is what it needed to be, a good look for the champion in the ring against the guy who bumped his ass off for him. That was really it. Uh, J.D. stood face-to-face with Braun after the bell, so Isla Dragunov entered and joined them. J.D. headbutted Isla and beat on Braun. Then he avoided a flying torpedo Moscow with Dragunov, nailing Breaker instead of McDonough to end the entire thing. There was nothing wrong with this either. Typical triple threat match lead-up booking where one guy's trying to hit one guy and then he ends up hitting another guy. So we've seen that a million times. I'm still not really into the match, but yes, it should bang Breaker, McDonough, and Dragunov. Later in the parking lot, Grayson Waller interrupted Dragunov thinking he was saying the tagline from the challenge, which popped me massively as a fan of the show. Waller suggested Dragunov was getting out of Dodge for, quote, accidentally hitting Breaker. So Dragunov said that he'd stay, insinuating they would fight. Waller was obviously upset by that. Apollo Crews later said some convoluted shit while writing in his journal about a match with Waller at Halloween Havoc. I swear, man, Cruz's segments are more confusing to me than the old cult leader Bray Wyatt promos. Like, this is one of two gimmicks in NXT. You guys know the other one. They just grate me every time I see it. I don't understand why they're using Apollo Crews this way. The guy is so talented. Why are you saddling him with a horrible go-nowhere gimmick? It doesn't make sense. So we had Dragunov against Waller. Midway through, Waller hit a springboard elbow drop. He was going for his running cutter later when the lights went out and the wheel from Spin a Wheel Make a Deal appeared on stage and started spinning. Distracted, he ran into the ring and Dragunov countered his cutter with a German suplex before adding a leg hook suplex. He came back with Torpedo Moscow for the win in 11 minutes. As Dragunov came off the ropes from celebrating, Breaker absolutely destroyed him with a spear to end NXT. McDonough watched and clapped menacingly from the stands. This was really well wrestled. The right person obviously won, given he's in a world title match coming up. Isla looked like he legitimately hurt his nose at some point, but it wasn't bleeding or anything like that. The match was just okay, despite both guys being talented. As was a trend with NXT this week, the post-match was better than the match itself. Great way to end the show with Braun's awesome spear and JD smirking as like a master manipulator from the crowd. The camera work on both shots was fantastic. Also, the last couple of weeks have actually been improvements for JD McDonough. He badly needed those adjustments. I still don't like the gimmick or the character, but it's better than it was, you know, preceding the last two weeks. Nathan Frazier fought Axiom in a North American Championship uh, qualifying match. A great spot with Axiom pulling Frazier down on a leapfrog by his ankle. Axiom then countered a hurricanrana off the ropes by pulling Frazier down onto the ropes. Frazier took Axiom's head off with a kip-up super kick, meaning he did the super kick while he was kipping up. Uh, then he did a sliding pull-down powerbomb like Shinsuke Nakamura, but he did it through the middle rope instead of sliding on the canvas. That was super cool. Frazier did a moonsault inverted DDT outside. Frazier caught Axiom sliding back inside with a springboard dropkick. They slightly botched a corkscrew counter into a triangle. Axiom hit a crazy moonsault outside, but Frazier caught him off the top rope for a superplex. When he went to continue it into the Falcon Arrow or, or something else, Axiom countered into a rear naked choke. The crowd was on fire. There was almost a double pin, but after multiple exchanges and counters, Frazier caught Axiom in a tight pinning combination for the win in 13 minutes. They shook hands. 
Frazier raised Axiom's arm. Uh, the fans gave them a standing ovation and chanted, that was awesome after the bell. I'm not saying that chant has never happened before. I'm quite sure it has. I can't remember the last time I've heard that was awesome instead of this is awesome. Exceptional match between these two guys. I'd have loved a little bit more of a decisive finish to get Frazier over more, but the entire booking was to show that these guys are basically evenly matched and Frazier just beat him by a hair, which was that pinning combination. I went 4.25 stars and an A. Alba Fire fought JC Jane. Fire cut a taped promo about forcing Mandy Rose into a title match and taking apart Toxic Attraction piece by piece. Jane later claimed they should be number one contenders for the women's tag team titles again. I feel like they say that every week. Uh, promising to beat Fire and send her back to Middle Earth. She also said they might have a trick up their sleeves. Fire hit an alternate style Liger Bomb and a Tope Suicida. Gigi Dolan distracted during the Gory Bomb, but Fire got it anyway and won in three minutes. This is one of the matches I was talking about where Three minutes here does not benefit anyone. As Alba was walking to the back, she went to shake a fan's hand, only to be driven face first into the steel barricade. Turns out the fan was Sonia Deville, wearing a black hoodie. She jumped over the barricade, demolished Alba with Jane and Dolan. Then she went wild, ripping apart the announce table and hitting fire with a vicious shield powerbomb into it. Later backstage, Deville said she had her differences with Mandy Rose, but they're still best friends who have each other's backs, and she wanted Alba one-on-one next week. Kaylee Ray went from putting on bangers with Mako Satamora and Blair Davenport to struggling through a three-minute match with JC Jane. Like, this women's division in NXT badly needs to be enhanced and repaired. Why are we having Alba beat one half of a longtime duo of tag team champions who is part of the most dominant women's group in the company? Why is she winning that match in three minutes? It doesn't make her look good, and it actively makes JC look bad. That said, I mentioned this earlier as well, the post-match attack was perfect. It was way better than the match itself. DeVille was an awesome surprise. I love the idea of her aligning with Mandy again. The question is whether it's convenient or whether it's something long-term. Alba getting to wrestle Sonya next week, it's a great way to help establish her further, given how that really did not happen in the match that we just discussed. But again, it needs to get some time. A six-minute match with Alba and Sonya, it's just not going to suffice. Malik Blade and Idris Anofe fought Briggs and Jensen and the Dyad in a NXT Tag Team Championship number one contender triple threat match. Pretty deadly. We're in the crow's nest dressed like they were at an American tailgate to watch the match. They made fun of each team. And that was really about it. Uh, this used the proper rules with three legal men simultaneously. Jensen did an assisted tightrope cannonball outside. That was a little bit of a surprise. Briggs went on an insane run, including tossing Blade against the ropes outside and then hitting him with a lariat off the rebound. That was awesome. Next was a furious sequence of moves with Blade and Anofe impressing. Joe Gacy appeared and leveled Anofe with a lariat at ringside. He tossed him back into the ring. Cameron Grimes took uh, Gacy out with Caven. Then he interrupted Ticket to Mayhem with Anofe rolling through for the win in about 12 minutes. Well-booked match with the right number one contenders coming out of it. Blade and Anofe, they're fresh in the title picture. They're young. They're exciting in the ring. All four of the baby faces actually got to shine in the match, but Briggs was the easy MVP of the entire thing. He exceeded expectations. And I really do think long-term, I've said this before, that they do have something with Josh Briggs. Josh Briggs has it. Whereas Jensen, I don't know. I, I don't think there's anything there, but you know, I think he's more of a Genetti is the best way uh, I can put it. Later backstage, Gacy told Grimes, he tried to save him from his pathetic existence, but now must take him out of this world. He dared him to fight Schism one-on-three because no one has his back. 
As they walked away, the person in the red hoodie and the yellow mask followed them. It was a pretty decent promo, actually, from Gacy, I will say. Probably the best one they've done in months. Uh, Grimes later agreed that there is no one in NXT he trusts, suggesting he had another team in mind from within WWE. So that's a good tease for next week with some main roster talent coming down. Diamond Mine visited Roderick Strong in the hospital. It was an overly dramatic segment, almost like it was out of a soap opera. Uh, Julius Creed promised to put Damon Kemp in the hospital. Strong apologized for bringing Kemp into the crew and nearly ending them. It was like a win one for the Gipper type of deal. Incredibly corny, but I'm almost positive it was purposefully corny. At least I hope that's what the idea was. If it was purposefully corny, then this was very good and entertaining. If it wasn't, then it was horrendously executed. Um, so it's either going to be that that happens or it was kind of a roundabout way of creating more bullshit in Diamond Mine before Roddy like appears in the ambulance during the match and costs Julius, which would then expel Brutus from NXT. Not that I would understand the booking of Brutus leaving and Julius staying, but it does seem like that's at least a possibility coming out of this. I'm really curious to see what this booking is and where it goes, because this Diamond Mine story has had a lot of twists and turns. It's gone on for a while. We thought it was Roderick Strong for a period of time. We thought it might be how they write Roderick Strong off because he requested for his release. Maybe he's rescinded his request, so they changed it. Maybe this was always the plan. I just don't know. So I am curious to see what happens with Diamond Mine when we get to Halloween Havoc. Cora Jade backstage said she needs to narrow down her Pick Your Poison challenge for Roxanne Perez. She suggested that Roxy was ghosted by the main roster superstars that she contacted. Mackenzie Mitchell informed Cora that Roxy's DMs were actually blowing up and that she was headed to SmackDown on Friday. Jade was infuriated. Then she asked if Mackenzie had Ronda Rousey's number. Mackenzie said no, but then she actually whispered to the camera, actually, I do. Later, Cora told Mackenzie that Rhea Ripley invited her to Raw, so she would be on a major show this week also. It was actually a really fun couple of segments for a heel. Cora is thriving since her heel turn, and it's working as we expected. I wouldn't be surprised to see Ripley and Raquel Gonzalez be the two challengers, but more than anything, it's cool that a couple of 20 and 21-year-olds in Roxanne Perez and Cora Jade are going to be on main roster WWE television, theoretically talking to people backstage getting some rub, and then bringing those people over to NXT, which promotes the NXT show. That's awesome. Zoe Stark and Nikita Lyons had a similar taped conversation to the one Caden Carter and Katana Chance had last week. Lyons put over Stark for her ability. Stark put over Lyons for developing quickly, and they were confident that they would win the title. This wasn't as long or notable as the one with the champions last week, but it was good enough to give like reasons behind them actually becoming a team. Quincy Elliott was watching that very interview segment with Hank and the security guards backstage. Hank told Quincy he'd have his back next week against Zion Quinn. Elliot called him Hanky as a nickname, and the security guards thought it like exemplified their team chemistry. It was They thought it was cute, basically. It was kind of a fun, quick segment. Uh, Indy Hartwell fought Valentina Royce Backstage, Sangha promised Royce that he would be in her corner, but Indy scoffed at that. Veer walked out like a minute into the match and whispered in Sangha's ear. Uh, he left with Veer backstage. Royce had a running Meteora, but Indy did a superplex, pulling her over the ropes from the ring apron, and that got the win in less than four minutes. I would have liked a couple more minutes, but Indy is so far beyond Valentina in skill. So I did think this was fine. It's good to see her back wrestling again. I just hope it's more consistent. And the continuation of Veer and Sangha, you guys know I love that. That's super interesting. I'm glad to see that happening. I just hope it doesn't like revert them into Indusher with like the face paint and the gear and all that. I want them to look as stylish and cool as they do 
wearing their suits. I know they can't wear their suits in the ring, but maybe they can have a similar aesthetic when they get in there. Wes Lee fought stacks. Lee hit some type of like corkscrew move from the top rope for the win, despite only getting half of it. This lasted four minutes. Trick Williams attacked immediately after the bell with Carmelo Hayes joining. Oro Mensa evened the odds with Trick saving Melo from Mensa's finisher, only for the heels to eat a Topek on Hero. Again, this match was just way too short. No one is getting over in four minutes. The post-match was fine, setting up a likely tag team match next week. And it did look like Lee legitimately hurt his ankle, so hopefully he's okay and that repairs itself. Later backstage, Tony D'Angelo returned. He criticized Stax for screwing up both in his match and in his loss to Wes Lee. Uh, D'Angelo said Stax will have another match next week to prove himself, but he refused to share the opponent. This was like whatever. D'Angelo and Stax is far less effective without two dimes. And as I've said before, this gimmick has already run its course. It was fun for a while. The stuff with Tony D paying people off and, you know, doing this or that. It was fun. Now it's trite and boring and nothing they're doing is exciting. It's just Italian mobster gimmick that was played out 30 years ago. Uh, Kiana James was again talking random business stuff in her office with a blueprint of Chase U on her big screen saying it would be the first of her many acquisitions. These segments remain absolutely awful. In fact, the only good part about the segments is Kiana James' assistant. Uh, James then fought Thea Hale in a match. After the bell, Mr. Stone slid into the ring with a microphone because he was embarrassed that Hale slammed him last week. He promised to ruin her night, but she caught him with a back body drop instead. When Hale turned around, James caught her with the 401k, which is the name of her finisher, which is basically an inverted sling blade for the win. I'd really shit on this match, but it was 100% story-based, and I'm sure there's going to be a rematch or something. Hale and Stone is entertaining, but I have no idea where it's leading. Um, Later backstage, people walked by and laughed at Stone. Von Wagner said it was time to get serious, and he needed Stone locked in. Stone focused and said it was time for Wagner to be champion. Wagner remains a terrible speaker. This promo was terrible. I do kind of like the general idea going back to Keanu James of her trying to like take down the Chase U campus or not allow them to build one because I don't think there is one. They've never showed it, although they did show them in a classroom. Whatever it is, I'm kind of interested in it to like some minor degree. But man, I'm just telling you, her gimmick, it, it sucks. I mean, it seems like they're trying to do almost like a modern day IRS, but as a business person, except she's wearing like really short skirts and her her assistant has her cleavage showing. So it's all sexualized. It just doesn't really like, it doesn't feel legitimate like it should if you're going to go down this aisle, at least with Tony D'Angelo. Like the way he speaks and some of the things he did on screen, you actually believe it. Go back to AEW. You talk about like Mark Sterling, right? Buying up trademarks of people. Um, the firm buying contracts of people. Like that to me makes things a little bit more real than Keanu James sitting in an office, like saying random business terms on the phone with someone who you don't even know who she's talking to or what exactly she's talking about. She's saying analytics and she's saying this and that and gross profit margin and all these terms. And you're like, all right, what the hell are you though? What are you actually doing? So if they can hone this in and make it more serious, then okay, maybe it might actually work as a gimmick. But right now, it just seems like kind of a half-assed attempt to do like a modern-day IRS. And even then, it doesn't really work. And I'm not really that interested in that. So that was NXT this week. Like I said, there was a lot of good storytelling. The wrestling left something to be desired. And that was unfortunate because I did find the show to be entertaining. One other note before we get out of here with NXT. They did. I forgot what the exact number was. But I want to say it was like 700 and... 
34,000 viewers or something for the show. It was their highest viewership for an episode of NXT since Halloween Havoc 2021. And that obviously was a special episode. So the fact that it did that many viewers was awesome. And one reason why that happened is because it was promoted. We had Braun Breaker and Nikita Lyons on Extreme Rules during SmackDown last Friday, but even more so on Raw, which is also on the USA Network. They heavily promoted NXT. When you tell your audience of wrestling fans that they have another wrestling show to watch, guess what? They're going to watch it. If they can, WWE can start getting in the 700s, the low 800s, if they can get that demo up from 0.15 to somewhere in the twos, all of a sudden we're going to be looking at NXT and saying, wow, this 2.0 era that transitioned into the white and gold era, it's really working. So they're close. They're not there yet, but just a couple more months, we may well see NXT reaching numbers that it used to reach black and gold when it had way better wrestling and way more talented people on the show in terms of those that were ready for the main roster. And that would be considered a major accomplishment. So that is it from this week of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I appreciate you all joining us once again for this AEW and NXT show. We will be back right in this spot, same bat time, same bat channel next week. That, by the way, I believe will be our... NXT Halloween Havoc Ultimate Preview because it is going to be a premium live event. It is not going to be a special TV show. So same bat time, same bat channel next week. NXT Halloween Havoc Ultimate Preview and a breakdown, of course, of everything going on in AEW. But of course, between now and then, our next show will be our latest WWE episode as that brand, uh, company, brand, whatever you want to call it, continues building towards Crown Jewel, Blood Money in the Sand, and Survivor Series, two premium live events in the month of November. Thank you all once again for listening to today's show. Allow me to remind you on the way out that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as well. They help us immensely. And please also do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Thank you all for listening. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.